Welcome to Hot Topics in Kidney Health, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation. Each episode, we highlight the latest in kidney research, bring you up-to-date news in kidney care, dispel myths, and answer your kidney health questions. Undocumented people face increased barriers to accessing health coverage and care, including treatment for kidney disease. What treatment options are currently available for undocumented people, and what kind of advocacy efforts are being made to improve their access to health care? On this episode, we sat down with experts to discuss the unique challenges that undocumented people face when navigating healthcare for their kidney disease. Hi, I'm Liz Vaquero. I'm a kidney transplant patient in the state of Georgia. I received a kidney transplant in August of last year, actually. Uh, so it's been a year so far. Everything has been great, has been working perfect. I found out I had a kidney disease back in March of 2019. I was uh, very ill. I kind of hesitated to go into the emergency room. I kept telling myself, oh, I'll be fine. Nothing's wrong. It's just going to go away. Um, but, you know, as a Hispanic woman, uh, my mother was like, there's something wrong. You need to go like right now. Um, she pushed me to go to um, the emergency room. And so we were in there. And they told me my kidneys uh, failed. I was immediately put into dialysis. Um, I was in the hospital for about a week. Um, everything was happening so fast. I um, They put a catheter in my chest. I didn't know what it was for. Um, and oh, I, I was emotionally devastated that whole week when I was in there. Um, and my family, they also took a family a toll on my family as well. Um, I was working a part-time job at that time, um, which I had no health insurance. Um, I'm a DACA holder, um, which if for some who might not know, that's um, an administrative relief that Obama passed during his years for um, childhood arrivals that were brought here by the parents. Um, that only really protects us from deportation and pro provide us a work permit. Um, because I do live in the state of Georgia, where um, there are no resources for undocumented immigrants with chronic conditions. I was kind of stuck on what I was going to do after um, I was released from the hospital uh, that week. And so I started taking emergency dialysis. Um, meaning I was only taking dialysis on an emergency basis. Um, that was for about a year and a half. Um, and that was because I didn't have health insurance. Um, I connected with several social workers, um, other organizations that I thought could probably help me. No one could provide any help. Um, I took it upon myself to do some reading, some research of what I could do. Um, I found out I could I could purchase private insurance. And so I did. I told myself, even if I have to be broke, uh, health is a priority. So I eventually ended in, um, in center, uh, in the dialysis center, and obtained my kidney transplant last year. Um, I'm excited to be here. I'm tenfold to be here. I'm joined by Dr. Cervantes. Um, Dr. Cervantes, I'm going to pass it to you. If you can tell us about yourself, who you are, um, what you do, what motivated you to start working 
with undocumented immigrants and kidney disease. Take it away, Dr. Cervantes. Yes. Oh my goodness, Luz, your story, you are so inspiring. And um, I am just in awe of you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I have some questions for you. <laughs> I'll just quickly introduce myself and answer your question. And then and then I, I want to go back to that moment when you were diagnosed. Um, my name is Lilia Cervantes, and I'm an internal medicine hospitalist physician and um, a health services researcher. I um, became very interested in this um, once I started working at the safety net hospital here in Colorado. There were several patients who came to our hospital once a week when they were sort of at death's door because they needed to be emergently dialyzed. And there was one particular patient that um, I became very close friends with. Um, her name was Hilda, and she at the time had two little boys. And I think part of the reason I was so moved by her is because our lives were parallel in so many ways. We were both, um, you know, in similar age. I had two little girls. She had two little boys. And my own parents had come to the U.S. just a few days before I was born because they wanted me to have U.S. citizenship. And so I think as her physician and as I was taking care of her, I just felt like it was so unfair that she had to come to the hospital on a weekly basis near death and that her little boys had to see her that way. Um, it broke my heart that, you know, on a weekly basis, they wondered if their mom would survive to the following week. And so I, um, Hilda and I became very close friends. And um, over time, as she came to the hospital on a weekly basis, she got very sick. Um, she, over time, had three cardiac arrests and um, developed um, cardiomyopathy and several other um, medical problems. And ultimately, she knew that her days were numbered. She knew that um, she was not going to live a very long life. But most importantly, what was hard for her is seeing her kids struggle with uh, her medical condition. Her boys um, came to the hospital each time she came, and they stayed with her in her room. Um, they weren't going to school because they didn't want to leave their mom. Um, her oldest son had called an ambulance twice when she had arrested at home, so he was really anxious about leaving her. And so over time, she ultimately decided to stop emergency dialysis. And those were some of the hardest conversations that we had together um, because everything centered around her love for her boys and her desire to see them grow up without the anxiety that their mom might die and to have an education and to be loved by a family that wasn't struggling as much as she struggled. And so... She worked with a couple of adoption agencies and found um, an adoptive family. And as they were going through the fostered adopt process, once Hilda felt like they were the right parents for her boys, um, she had one last big Christmas party and um, she cooked all the food for us. 
And, um, and then she said goodbye and spent some time with her family in Mexico and passed away. Um, she passed away on Mother's Day in 2014. And um, it was, for me, it was taking care of Hilda and taking care of the rest of the patients, just like Hilda at my hospital that motivated me to do something about this. Um, I felt morally distressed going back to work after Hilda passed away to continue doing the same. I just felt like something had to change. It just didn't feel right anymore. I, I couldn't, you know, we were compelled to provide that type of care. Um, and we cared very deeply for these patients, but this is sort of what we had to do because of state and local policies. And so um, at that time, I decided to um, transition to research because um, I was a full-time clinician before then and uh, really sort of focused on building the research um, that would drive policy change in the state. So Hilda, Hilda's the main reason um, I, you know, started this journey. Um, she, meeting her was sort of defining for me. And um, I am forever grateful for her. And um, I'm so appreciative that you shared your story. And so I wanted to go back to that moment when you were diagnosed, Luz, because I feel like sometimes when I was in the hospital, patients, you know, are diagnosed with kidney failure. And as a physician, like we, I felt like I was sometimes at a loss for words as I sat next to the patient explaining what their options were, uh, because there are really no options except coming to the hospital for emergency dialysis. And so I was hoping you could take us back to that moment when you were diagnosed and you found out that you wouldn't have access to regular dialysis. Um, when, well, I was in the room, um, I initially went in there because I got um, I got a referral for extreme anemia, and so I was immediately, you know, they immediately let me in. They gave me a blood transfusion, um, and I remember the doctor telling me that my kidneys had failed. My mom was sitting next to me, sorry, um, and my brother. My mom doesn't speak any English. So the doctor was telling me what, what was happening. And so I just kind of, I broke down and like crying, you know? And so my mom doesn't know what's going on or why I'm crying, you know, like, like sobbing, crying. And I can't talk to her in that moment. So, because reality has hit me. I'm thinking, you know, my kidneys have failed. I don't have health insurance. Um, what am I going to do? I'm completely new to this. I don't know what this entitles. I need a kidney transplant. Um, and so my mom is coming to me and she's telling me what's wrong in Spanish. And I, I can't even look at her. <laughs> and then I have my brother on the side who does speak English and knows what's going on. But him himself is in shock. He, that he was not expecting that. So he's also, it was, just imagine a room full of, people crying, you know? And so in that moment, I, I was just trying to process what was happening. Um, I was um, 
trying to in some way also maintain composure for my family. Um, I wanted to make them feel like, you know, we're going to be okay. <laughs> so um, I was just taking everything one step at a time. Um, when they took me to go get the catheter, I didn't understand what the catheter was. I didn't know how it worked. I remember the first time they used it. Um, it was I. It was overwhelming when you see how it works and what it's doing. Um, after that, the whole week in the hospital was an emotional toll for me. Uh, I also suffer from other conditions. Um, but there's something that I haven't mentioned before, and this was my lack of knowledge here. Uh, two or two years prior, or two two years prior to being told that I need a kidney transplant, um, and this is perhaps a lack of education of no one really doing a follow up with me or anything. I was younger at that time. They had done a biopsy on my on my kidney. And they told me that it was expelling a lot of protein. There was a lot of protein found in my in my urine. I didn't understand it, so I dismissed it. I never looked into it. I didn't know what it entitled. And then two years later, I found out that I had kidney. My kidneys have failed. And so I also felt like a sense of guilt um, because I could have prevented that if I perhaps I looked into it back two years ago if maybe I had a doctor doing follow-ups or something. Um, but mainly after leaving the hospital, it was, what am I going to do now? Um, talking to the social worker that week, asking her, this is my position here. Do you have options? Uh, what can I do? And her being like, there's nothing I can provide you with. There's no options for you at this moment other than just coming here on an emergency basis only. Um, and I can relate to uh, Ilda, Dr. Cervantes, in so many levels. Um, you know, it this doesn't only affect you, it affects your family. Um, having to come in uh, when you're borderline, like this is our lifeline. And then sometimes you're turned around and um, it's not like you need this to survive, you know? And also you have to keep strong for others as well. So, and I can understand you as the doctor, as a physician, um, how this, how you've seen this developed and in thinking to yourself, how can this be? And you holding on to that as well and wanting to uh, make change. Um, that's what prompted me to the change because in my time during the emergency room, I met, I met many people in the same condition who were parents, grandparents, who didn't have family here. Uh, they were also undocumented. Um, and that's what prompted me to, like you, I'm like, something has to change. Like, this cannot be happening. Like, it's, something has to change. Um, so Luz, tell me about what you're doing now. What is it that you're doing to change this? How are you supporting others? Well, um, I here on my where I live, the connections that I made in the emergency room, I try to educate people on 
um, kidney disease and their conditions, uh, I give them based on what I know and what has, has helped me. I know it doesn't work for everyone, but it's more, um, I'll tell them, hey, you know, if you eat certain foods, this is this is not good for you. Or I'll make calls for them. I serve as an advocate for them. And um, I encourage them to also purchase private insurance. Um, it has worked in some cases. I had people wait for me to see my outcome now that I have a kidney transplant. And they'll call me and ask me to help them enroll. Uh, I make home visits sometimes uh, to assist them. Um, I call the clinic uh, as an advocate to do follow-ups. Um, sometimes I do small fundraisers for them to, uh, you know, provide them with um, things that they might need or help them make medicines. I also joined the NKF advocacy um, group. I'm in several of them. I initially joined uh, the NKF um, advocacy groups for to bring awareness to the issue. Because uh, that's where my mind went. I'm like, this is happening and I need to bring attention to it. Um, little that I know, there's already a, a force working behind it as well. And there's people that care about this issue just as much as I, I, I do. And that brings great satisfaction to me uh, to be working with them. And uh, we're all driven by the same cause as well. Absolutely. And Luce, when you, um, when you go to the hospital and you're providing support, emotional support, sounds like also funding, fundraising support for patients that are going through this. Um, can you describe some of the patients that you've connected with, um, some of their stories? Sure. Um, there are, there's one gentleman that I particularly have become very close to. He's an older gentleman. He's in his late 60s. And I think the reason why I'm so fond of him is because I met him in the emergency room and when we were in the emergency room, we were all kind of put in a room together and, you know, we would see each other laying in the bed waiting to be, you know, let through for the treatment. And we would sit there and talk, you know, and mainly the conversations were surrounded about our issues and how we were treated in there. And I would try to, you know, we would try to encourage each other in there. And Pedro, uh, he's from Mexico. He's in his late 60s. He was very grumpy when we were in the emergency room, you know? And so when I got my private insurance, I kept in touch with them still. And I would encourage Pedro to get private insurance. And he finally took my word on it last year. Um, and I was like, I will help you navigate this. But I'm very fond of him because I almost, it's like a, I'm seeing like my grandfather or something, you know? And I think if that was my grandfather, I would want someone to do that for him. I would want someone to walk him through. So Pedro suffers from heart issues as well. Um, and the thing about Pedro is that Pedro only works to pay his insurance, okay? And considering the fact that he comes out of dialysis and you come out drained, you come out tired, and he still goes to work. And he's just working to survive, you know? Um, I have met another mother when I first met her in the emergency room. Her name is Marissa. She, you know, she was walking. She was, she had a sight. Then I later found out that she can no longer see, that she lost both her legs. So, and she has two kids uh, as well. So those are the things that 
move me to continue to advocate for them, to help them. Um, you know, it's, I want I want to see them well. Not everybody, even I I always acknowledge that I have some type of advantage to them and even a privilege because I'm able to communicate my needs. I have a work permit that allows me to work. I have a job that works with me. They don't have that. So I, I always acknowledge that. So I feel like I know what it's like, so I have to help them. Absolutely. And Lucy, you were describing, you know, this very hardworking community. And it just reminds me of, of the community here in Colorado. They're all hardworking. They all work so hard and for similar reasons to pay their private health insurance, to help their families at home, because it's only if they can pay private health insurance that uh, they can go through the process of uh, getting waitlisted for transplant. Um, and so Luz, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned, uh, when uh, we recently spoke about college, you have aspirations to go to college and um, to do more things. And so I was wondering if you could describe sort of where you see yourself five years from now and how um, your life experience has um, shaped where you want to be five years from now. Five years from, from now. Um, yeah, I, this has, I originally wanted to be a teacher before. <laughs> Because my grandmother is a teacher, but after this experience, I I want to study public health. I want to be able to understand how disparities work. Um, um, what can I do? What can be done to overcome those disparities? How can I apply that in my community? Um, specifically in in states like Georgia, where there's no resources at all. And I admire your work a lot because you were able to create a movement in Colorado, you know, and that is amazing to me. So I would like, I dreamed or I hope to maybe have some type of nonprofit here or uh, to do outreach to educate the, in states like Georgia that are limited resources, educate the population, uh, maybe have like a group of liaisons that does outreach uh, with education, um, being able to have some type of fundings to help them pay, you know, their co-pays or um, provide interpretation services, uh, work with other stakeholders that are able to contribute to that, um, break the, um, those barriers they ha they have and make it easier for them to, um, you know, get the proper care they need. So, in five years, I I hope to have developed something like that uh, and better understand how public health works here. Uh, what are the barriers? How do we break them? Um, how do stakeholders work uh, in regards of contributing to like a nonprofit? Uh, things of that sort. Um, I know, um, Dr. Cervantes, you've done a lot in Colorado in regards to that. Um, can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, thank you first, Luz, for sharing. Um, it's really, I'm, I'm so excited to see you grow, and I'm so excited to see where this journey takes you. 
Um, so similarly, after taking care of Hilda after she passed away, and um, since I started this journey in research, I just see it as such an incredible. I see research as an incredible mechanism to uh, reduce health disparities, to improve health for our communities. And so um, separate from my work with the undocumented community, I have laid down the groundwork through a lot of uh, mixed methods research, like qualitative interviews and quantitative work to understand the various um, sociological, um, uh, well, what I should say is the various socio-demographic challenges faced by the Latino community, you know, like poverty and um, the lack of language interpreters in clinic and other settings and um, the lack of um, educational materials available for people at their health literacy and health education level. And so I um, conducted a lot of mixed methods research for a few years and um, then um, connected with community partners like patients and caregivers and um, other partners um, to create a community health worker intervention. And um, we were able to connect with uh, Latinos that were receiving in-center dialysis on you know, improving their life the way they want it improved. So it was like person-centered and um, goal-directed um, support. And since that study, we've also done another study, a slightly bigger one, a randomized study, also with community health workers. And um, now we're applying for more funding to sort of work on the next phase of um, this type of community-engaged um, uh, clinical um, research to improve care. But that's my passion too. I, I, I really, we're, I, I can't uh, emphasize enough how um, meaningful this work is to me and meaningful because of what I saw Hilda go through and in conducting the research, what I saw other patients go through. And, um, and it's not just undocumented, it's also documented Latinos who are very hardworking, but have no access to care, um, or they have access to care, but can't connect with their clinician, um, or they connect with their clinician, but there's no language interpretation available or time for them to, you know, really delve into the questions that they have. And so, you know, there's a lot of challenges with the healthcare system and um, so many opportunities to do disparities research to um, change the change these structures. And so I'm so excited that you're interested in this work because I would love to work with you. <laughs> I, I would love to work with you too. Yeah. I that is I I dream of that to study that. Uh, after sometimes I ask myself why 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 am I going through this, you know? What is the purpose behind it? And and I don't know, some, something lately I feel like perhaps this is it, you know, I I was meant to share this experience with others and help them. Because um, I think it's different when you can relate to that person because you've gone through it yourself, you know. So you're able to contribute even more to what's already been done. 
um, like like yourself, um, the work you've done, the work others, so the force behind that also is driven by others for the same reason. And you inspire your community, Luce. They see you and they say, well, she got a transplant. I can do this. She worked hard to pay for her private health insurance. I can do this too. And so you are an inspiration to everyone around Thank you. you. Thank you. I mean, it's it's the least I, I can do. I want to see everyone being given the same chance as I I had, you know. So, um, and, and it's wonderful when I do see that, that they, they see that, you know, she was able to do it. I can do it too. Because I had uh, someone, uh, Fernando, he's a younger man. Um, he didn't trust the whole private insurance thing until so he saw that I, I had my transplant and he was like, Hey, Luz, help me out. Um, you did it. And I did a home visit. I talked to his mom, to his sister. We encountered some challenges during his, uh, private insurance enrollment, um, mainly with paying the, the insurance. Uh, but through all that, you know, um, I I try to maintain him positive and not discourage. And, you know, I'm here to assist you with everything as much as I can with what I can. And now he's in clinic and uh, someone else uh, in the emergency room told him, hey, you, you actually are in there because they're in the same position. Um, and now he himself is like, do it, like, do it. it you can do it as well. Like, so it's kind of like a domino effect, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I know it's interesting how um, one person can inspire so many just by leading by example. And you have definitely done that. I thank you. Dr. Cervantes, there is, um, you have a support group or you develop one. Is that correct? An advocacy group or something of that sort in Colorado? Yeah. So, so the patients actually developed. Oh, right. Okay. 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 Thank you. <laughs> but, but it was it was really fun actually. Um, this was back in I want to say 2016 maybe. Um, we had some extra funds, and um, Claudia Camacho. She is uh, an amazing patient advocate and uh, navigator here in Colorado, thought it would be a great idea to sort of use those funds to bring patients together and um, talk about whatever topic was of interest to the patients. And so we did that for six months. Uh, We got together with the patients in the hospital every two weeks, and um, they sort of came up with a list of topics that they wanted to talk about, and we would share a meal and um, talk about, you know, sometimes it was they wanted to talk about um, vascular access problems. And so we would bring a couple of clinicians to talk to them. And then we would do artwork together as well. So it was, it was, it was very fun. So it was art. It was learning about a medical topic of interest to them and, um, and then sharing a meal. And many of them, what was interesting is, um, this is actually something that was really interesting, is before this experience, sometimes um, what we noticed is they would come to the emergency department and, um, you know, oftentimes because the dialysis chairs were limited, we could only dialyze the people that had the highest potassiums. And so there was sometimes a little bit of tension between them because they were like, well, I followed my potassium, my low potassium diet and you didn't. And why are you getting dialyzed? That's not fair. You know, so we kind of noticed some tension. And uh, what was really cool from this um, 
support group that we had in the hospital is that they um, were able to see themselves outside of that emergency department setting. And so they formed um, peer relationships with each other. And, um, and then once, once, once the funding ran out, because, you know, the funding didn't last forever, it was six months. Um, they, I, I think it was even maybe month three that they started talking about forming their own group because they wanted to continue to see each other. And, um, and then they started having fundraisers as well through this group. They called themselves Club Riñones Latinos. And um, they created a Facebook page and um, they started having, um, there's a word for it in Spanish. And Luz, maybe you can remind me, but it's um, where they make a lot of food and then they like sell it. Um, there's a name for it. I know, I, I can't think of it either right now. Um, it's not a reliquia, no, it's when that's, that's when you give free food. Um, I, I'm sorry, Dr. because my mind's also <laughs> like... Okay. It's okay, but they would they would all make food together on a weekend, and then they would text us all, and um, and then all the money always went to support one person to get private health insurance. That is amazing, and so it was really really cool. And they and they sort of got one person private health insurance one at a time, and um, and then as you know, once they got private health insurance, they could start getting in center dialysis, and then um, you know eventually enroll. Um, into a program that provides free subsidies, but they would hold these events. And, and so anyhow, so it was from these hospital peer support group that um, this grew out of, but it was, it was them. They were the ones that were inspired to see each other more often and to support each other. It was incredible. That is amazing. I love the fact that one another was like, we're going to do this. We're going to raise money. You're going to get this year the, you know, this pay for, and then this one that I love that, that, that is amazing. And you create those bonds when you're in there, you know, we're all connected by the same reason. We all want to see each other. Well, so. Absolutely. And it was so cool because they had this um, WhatsApp group and that's how we communicated about the food events. And then also the interviews with reporters uh, that wanted to highlight the situation or the research or the policy change. And so it was, it was all, it was all the patients. It was, it was them. They are amazing. Has it gone bigger, the group, or is it still the same members? Or Some of the same members, and there's a couple of people in the group that um, are kind of natural leaders, and um, now um, the Transplant Center reaches out to them when they're going to have a platica, a talk with the community, and so they're the ones that use the WhatsApp to reach out to people. So they're still using the WhatsApp, and I know because I get the alerts. <laughs> But um, they, they still see each other. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's just it's just the base of, you know, sharing the same factor here that brings us together. You mentioned policy and what has changed in Colorado as far as uh, policy goes? A lot of really cool changes lately. The most important was uh, a change to the emergency Medicaid program. So each state um, has its own emergency Medicaid program, and uh, each state can modify the qualifying conditions and services offered through the emergency Medicaid program. And um, in Colorado, they decided to include the diagnosis of end-stage kidney disease and um, thereby um, started offering standard dialysis to all undocumented beginning uh, February 1 of 2019. 
And then um, the second change was just recently in January 1st of 2022, they started offering home dialysis to undocumented also through the emergency Medicaid program. And then we've also um, had some legislative changes in Colorado. Just recently, we passed the Cover All Coloradans bill. Um, It's HB 221289. That one um, expands the state Medicaid program to undocumented children under the age of 18 and undocumented persons for 12 months postpartum. And so it's a huge win. Um, I can't... um, even remember the number of times something similar um, has been up for vote and, uh, and, and not gone through. And so this was a huge win. And this was possible because a lot of um, nonprofits came together um, to do advocacy around this. So this was also community. This wasn't led by, um, you know, legislators or physicians or anyone. It was all community that came together and they decided like we want to um, see if we can expand state Medicaid to undocumented. And they worked with uh, nonprofits um, and and eventually, you know, pushed forward policy development and then found uh, legislators to sponsor their bill. But it was all community led. Um, And there are several other examples of really neat legislation that have taken place in Colorado in the past three years, but um, I could talk about this forever, (laughs) so so I'll just stop there. But, you know, there's exciting changes, I think, all over the country. And I think what I've learned from this is that it takes perseverance and it takes realizing that one person can make a difference. Um, one person can join others and in solidarity make a difference. We just have to persist. I completely agree with you. I always say, take it one step at a time, you know, one step at a time until we get there. Do not give up. That was, this is what I tell, you know, um, those that I try to help, uh, not to lose hope. There's, you know, there's one step at a time. When things go down, we keep going. We don't, we don't give up. We just keep looking forward, you know. Um, do you, do you have any, do you foresee things like this to also happen in states like the one I'm in, like Georgia? Do you think? Absolutely. Um I just, considering, you know, everything that's happening, um, sometimes I wonder, you know, where do you begin with something like that in a place or a state like this? Um, Do you, what would you tell those people uh, or the people that are here uh, now in Georgia that we have no resources or other states that are in the same situation? Yeah, I think so, Luz, that's a great question. Um, I think that um, change in in most states is possible. And again, it goes back to that um, finding someone who is going to persist, right? Someone that's going to identify sort of the policy pathway or a strategy in your state. You have to, I think, connect with people with different expertise, and you might need to consider in your state connecting with legislators as well, depending on the policy pathway in Georgia. But I think, I I do think that change is possible, Luce. Um, It's just a matter of figuring out um, the the strategy. Um, Sometimes it 
so much of it has to do with relationships and connecting with the right people. And um, sometimes you have to build the, the communication or the case through, through data. And so um, I think in Georgia, I'm not sure if um, anyone has looked at the data in Georgia or um, identified sort of a policy pathway there, but I bet that you would find um, a number of people that are willing to join you to change things there. But I do think that change is possible. It's just a matter of persisting and, and um, getting more information and relationships. Are there any other states that are also doing things like Colorado right now? Yeah. In fact, ever since Colorado changed access to standard dialysis, I believe the number is now six. Um, six other states have um, changed access to care to standard dialysis for undocumented immigrants. And then as far as um, other legislation, um, I'm not um, familiar with what other states are doing, but I, I do keep hearing through the grapevine that other states are making similar changes. One change we just made is uh, the Health Insurance Affordability Enterprise Bill. Um, that one uh, provides subsidies towards private health insurance um, off the marketplace exchange for undocumented. And I did hear that there was one other state that was considering something similar. So I do think that you know, several states are changing and it makes sense because, um, you know, this is a community that is very hardworking. And um, to be honest, like, I think from my perspective and many people would agree, I think that healthcare is a right. It shouldn't be something that depends on the amount of money that you have. I agree with you on that. Well, Dr. Cervantes, it's been a pleasure as always to talk to you, to learn from you, to work with you. <laughs> Luz, the honor is mine. You are amazing, 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 amazing. And I can't wait to see where this path takes you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Before we end the episode, we want to give a shout out to Joel from Minnesota, who lived with kidney disease for over 12 years before receiving a kidney from Katie, who found him on social media. They both just celebrated two years kidney strong. Congratulations, Joel and Katie. Thank you for listening. Make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also email us directly with your comments and suggestions at nkfpodcast at kidney.org. We hope you will join us next time. And from all of us at NKF, we wish you good health.